Welcome back to Series 10 of 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today's 40-minute mentor is Raj Kaur Kara. Raj wears many hats. She is co-founder and COO of Autogen AI and also an acclaimed author, lawyer, and campaigner. She has an incredible track record helping companies achieve operational excellence, having scaled startups across roles in product development, customer success, finance, HR, marketing, and legal, to name a few. Now she's building Autogen AI a company that is at the forefront of natural language processing within artificial intelligence. On top of that, Raj is also a successful author and a women's rights and social mobility campaigner, having founded the Pink Ladu Project, a gender equality trend that has had a huge impact globally. There is so much to discuss with Raj in today's episode, so I can't wait to dive into her career and share her mentorship with you all. So Raj, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you, James. And thanks so much for inviting me on. Ah, the pleasure is all mine. I'm very excited. You have one of the most interesting backgrounds of all our guests. Uh, So it's really exciting to dive into your story and share it with our listeners. But before we get into it, we really should give you some quick fire questions to warm you up. So if you don't mind, can you finish the following sentences after me? Number one, I grew up wanting to be a doctor. Ah, Okay, a doctor. Where did that come from? Is that have you got doctors in the family? No, I'm the first person in the family to actually finish high school. So I grew up in Canada and um, I'm also English. I'm the first person in my family to finish high school. There are no doctors in my family. (laughs) I think I just, I was a child and I loved science. I did biology all the way through to university and um, I just didn't have exposure to many careers. It was also one of the only careers that I knew through which you could help people. And so that's kind of how I arrived on it. I really love science. I love understanding how the body works and I wanted to help people. So I wanted to be a doctor for a very long time. Amazing. Good stuff. Thank you for sharing. The last time I was scared was when? The last time I was scared was probably a few days ago when I was re-watching Stranger Things. I am also a big like horror movie sort of thriller aficionado I absolutely love being terrified so if there's ever like a horror movie or a scary movie that's out that is like terrifying everyone I'll probably be the first one to jump on watch it because I love 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 feeling scared oh that is brilliant it's normally the opposite reaction I get whenever I talk to people about horror movies so I love that I must say I I have a I have a soft spot for thrillers more thrillers than horrors but I don't mind a horror and Stranger Things is definitely one of my preferred Netflix binges so uh, that's good to know thank you for sharing the most memorable day in my career was I think the most memorable day in my career for me I think it was either like April 8th or 9th last year where I had made the decision to stop working for startups and I was going to go it alone and like focus on my books and my campaign and South Asian therapists, which is a business I run on the side. And I'd kind of resigned from Elliptic, which I think is a role that JBM placed me in with Laura Coffey. And I kind of said this kind of, I'd had this conversation with the universe that like, I'm done now. Like, thank you for all the opportunity. I'm going to focus on my own stuff. 
And then two days later, I think it was either 9th or the 10th or maybe 11th of April, I got a message from Sean Williams, who is one of the founders I worked with in his first business, where he said, I've got this AI thing in my head. Do you want to come on board? And I'd always said he's the only CEO I would ever go and work for again. And he's the only person I've worked for who is worth dropping your plans and going to do whatever he's doing. And that's just a really memorable day for me because it just felt very bizarre and cosmic. There's probably a few more, but... I, it was meant to be, clearly. It was just fake. Yeah, I mean, a meant to be will reveal itself in due course when we figure out what the actual long tail trajectory of this business is going to be. But it did feel very, yeah, meant to be. And I'm sure there's many other moments like that in my career. But in terms of like one that jumps out in recent memory, it's probably that. Oh, that's, that's amazing to hear. And I'm really excited to dig into more of the story of Autogen AI. But for now, we'll tease our listeners with that and we'll get into it a bit later. My biggest failure to date is? I think my biggest failure to date is that I never managed to do things on my own timeline. But I don't really define anything from the lens of failure. I had that's a, a very personal thing of mine that I don't see anything as a failure. I have zero regrets. I am very, very aware that literally everything that I did or didn't go through, every job that I did or didn't get in my life has almost poetically brought me to where I am now. And I would not change where I am now for a thing. So there's nothing that I really see as a failure, although objectively based on how other people define failure, I'm sure I've had many. I've been fired from very high profile jobs. I've done things very publicly that haven't worked out, but I do not see any of that as a failure because my life has kind of come together to where it is now in almost what I consider to be a poetic way. So I don't have that view of failure. I think that's a really refreshing way of framing failure. And uh, yeah, I think it's really good to hear a positive spin on that question because often we get some pretty, you know, really big, shocking failures in answer to that question. But I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. I mean, I guess if I had to be pushed to answer what is a failure, I would say I think it's a personal failure that I haven't been able to correct whatever it is within me that drives the anxious overachieving. I see that as a bit of a failure. Sometimes when I get into like my spirals of like, I'm not good enough. Oh God, what am I doing? I see the fact that I haven't been able to stop that as a bit of a failure. That's it really. But it, I guess that also might be part of the thing that keeps driving you to succeed and create some of the amazing wins that you've had in your career. So it's a catch 22 that I think sometimes, but yeah, I think there's probably a lot of people listening that have that trait and I'm definitely one of them. Thank you for sharing so openly. Last quick fire question. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be? I think I would really change the way we have gotten into a climate in the last 10 years where we celebrate and reward potential rather than outcome and success. You see this a lot in the way capital is raised or the way startups are spoken about, that we really tend to reward and celebrate fundraising when fundraising in and of itself is not a success signal, right? It's like celebrating that someone invested in your house rather than the fact that you sold your house. Like I I really wish we would kind of move towards celebrating again like we did in the olden days things like actual revenue customers landed where the business is actually going whereas now 
I see a lot of headlines and we'll be celebrating that X business raised X amount of money. Having worked for a lot of these companies, I know from the inside that is not an indicator of success. So that's one thing I wish we could change about entrepreneurship the way it is today. Yeah, totally. Couldn't agree more. And I feel that, I don't know if it's changing enough, but I'm seeing it with a few people I speak to that that seems to be, there's a lot of shifting in business models away from the hyper growth. Let's raise loads of money. Let's let's just scale rapidly. There's definitely some more sustainable growth being done at the moment, but I, I still think a lot of people in the ecosystem see fundraising as like a, a must, uh, you know, raise as much money as possible. And I think that's definitely should change. I agree that they should raise, but what I'm saying is that what I don't like is the idea that the raising in and of itself constitutes a success. And we were very clear about that, Autogen AI. When we raised our Series A, we were very clear to sort of disseminate or clarify within the business that a raise is an amazing, powerful signal that we're heading in the right direction, but that is not a success story in and of itself. We still need to get build an amazing product, make sure everyone that's using it is happy. Whereas I've worked in other businesses before and they're like celebrating a raise, you know, and you just kind of, I don't know, it's like celebrating getting a loan from the bank. Like you still have to go on and do the thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's really about what you then build off the back of the raise that will be an indicator of success. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I feel like we've already got a really interesting insight into you, Raj, already from some of those answers. And I'm really excited to hear more about your career, but we've got to start at the beginning. So tell me a bit about younger Raj, like what was your childhood like and how did your upbringing shape your future career? My childhood story is probably a very common story for most children of immigrants of our generation. I grew up in the UK. I am children of immigrants and everybody in my family is blue collar. I grew up with a very acute notion of what financial instability means and how that changes your options in life. I wasn't necessarily pushed to get an education. I've always been quite sort of academic and into doing well at school. But I also learned from a very early age that I didn't have a safety net and that things would be what I made them. I got my first job when I was 13. My parents had to sign a waiver for me to work in this call center. And I did some sort of telesales for the next 10 years. I think that really defined who I am and my view of the world. I think it showed me from a very early age that anything is possible so long as you figure out the right way of presenting it and cracking it. And I think sales really gives you that. I strongly encourage anyone out there who's listening, who you know hasn't started their first job yet, or perhaps is even midway through their career and wondering what to do next, go and spend six months doing sales, cold sales. It teaches you so much about how to persuade people. And that is something that you will benefit from for the rest of your career. It also teaches you the concept of how to work smart. It teaches you the idea of minimum input, maximum output. And those are some of the things that I find myself teaching people over and over and over again. And some of the best people I've worked with are the ones who understand those fundamental things. That is such interesting advice. And I think really good advice. Having had started my career in sales, and I guess all of my career in sales, it's it's helped me in lots of other ways, especially when building a business, actually. But um, 
you're the second guest this series that has said this. Um, it was actually a, a health tech founder who's a doctor. And during her training to be a doctor, she spent time in a call center and just because she wanted to try some different things. And, and she said it was a fundamental part of how she's got to where she is today. So I absolutely love this advice. I think it's really great to hear because a lot of people, I think, play down their role sales, you know, a sales career. But I actually think it's hugely valuable. You pride yourself on having zero fear of rejection these days, which I, I love. But I know that you got to this point because you had to face rejection early on. So do you mind telling our listeners a bit about that? And how have you stayed resilient during some of those sort of early setbacks in your life and career? It's really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people will relate when I say that my first big rejection or first rejection ever was Oxford. And I later learned that they say that there's a saying in England, obviously, I was applying from Canada. So I didn't know these sayings, but there's apparently a saying in the UK where students are told, make sure you do your driving test before you apply to Oxford. So Oxford isn't the first thing you fail at. And um, I find that really, really amusing. That was my first big taste of failure and rejection. It was hard. At this point, I had been the best performer at school. I'd gotten into the best uni in Canada. You know, things kind of sort of came quite easily to me, not because I was intelligent, but because the education system, the way it was structured, just really aligned with the way I learn. And so getting rejected from Oxford when I was like, I think 22 or 23, because I was applying as my second degree, I was just, I was kind of devastated. And then, you know, eventually I did a law degree and then the next rounds of rejection and big reality check came when I started applying for training contracts to eventually become a lawyer. And this was a real wake-up call because prior to this, even though I'd been rejected from Oxford, because I'd been kind of okay academically, I'd always been a bit of a like kind of coaster. I didn't really have that work ethic because there are two types of people that you encounter at school. The types of people who get where they are because they know how to work really hard despite being innately intelligent. And then the other type who, like me, were a bit lucky that school just matched with the way they learn and they just got ahead without having to ever really work super, super hard. And I think it's actually the former group that goes on to do well in life because you develop a work ethic very, very quickly. I didn't have the work ethic. Like I was just a bit like, it'll be fine, meh, meh, who cares? Until I actually started applying. And I started applying a year late as well, which was a wake up call, but also a testimony to how lazy and sort of chilled out I, I could be about these things because I just thought, oh, I'll be fine. When I started applying, it was a really big wake up call because I was getting like 20, 30, 40 rejections a year, year on year. And I started applying in 2010, which is the year I graduated. And I didn't get offered a training contract, I think, until, well, maybe 2009. It was a few years later. So I had a few years of applying and applying and applying and getting nothing. And they reached a point where I had to kind of make a decision about what do I do? Like, I still want this career, but I need to do something in the meantime because I can't afford to, like, not eat so I was like, right, you know, I want to get into this type of law firm. What do they respect? They respect other big commercial enterprises. Why don't I go and apply at Accenture and do that for a year while I'm still applying? And hopefully that will make me more desirable and I'll eventually be able to get in. And it's funny because a lot of my friends from law school did the same thing where they applied to Accenture, but then fell into the Accenture sort of wheel and stopped applying for training contracts. And I kind of kept going and it, be it became this sort of joke that like Raj has this pipe dream she's going to be a lawyer. 
And I was like, you know, it's really not a pipe dream, but it's literally the only reason I'm here is because I want to do that later. So I'm not going to let this distract me. And I, it was hard. It was really hard. Initially, it was very, very tough. The first year, I remember it really shaking my confidence. And I was like, oh my God, like I must be the stupidest person in the world. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with somebody who was a lawyer about a year later, who just put it down to me bluntly and said, it's a numbers game. If you want one training contract, you've got to do 40 applications. You'll get five interviews and one offer. If you're not doing that many applications, you're not playing the game. You're not sort of hedging your bets against the odds. But I think I also, I just learned that there were lots of people who had the job that I didn't consider exceptional. Therefore, I didn't have to be exceptional to do it. I just needed to figure out what the game was and play by those rules instead. So that's what I spent time doing. Sorry, that's a long answer. No, no, really interesting. Um, so for anyone listening that is maybe finding it difficult to pick themselves up after facing a big re- rejection, what advice do you have for them? And are, is there any examples that you've had from like a really big, gnarly setback that you've kind of navigated and any, anything practical that you can share in terms of what they might might be able to do to kind of get back on the, get back on the horse? I mean, I give this advice to friends, cousins, people I mentor, like I'm very direct about this now. And I just say, get a grip. Like you can't afford to wallow in the despair of the rejection. I think you just need to pick yourself up and move on and apply for the next thing. You know, I offer the advice that was given to me that this is a numbers game. You cannot afford to be so emotionally wedded to one uni or one employer or anything you've got to hedge your bets you know just apply cast the net wide throw lots of applications and see what sticks also be willing to adapt right I'm not saying that everybody who rejects you will be right I'm not saying that every time you get rejected there will be something that you need to fix but where it is obvious that there is something that you need to change change it I always talk about how Sean Williams who is the CEO and founder of Autogen AI and obviously I'm the co-founder of the same business He fired me from his first startup. And I always tell people that story because I think I had two options at that point. I could have wallowed and been like, oh my God, I've been fired, my life's over. Or you pick yourself up and you move on and you find something else. But equally, I had to really reflect on his feedback. And it was only when I found myself saying the things to others that he had been saying to me when he was trying to coach me into being the type of employee he needed that the penny really dropped, that actually that was me then. And that's on me. And so I actually went back to him and said, actually, I just wasn't where you needed me to be at that time, but I get it now. And I understand the advice. And lo and behold, five years later, I'm the co-founder of his next business. So I think if you know you were wrong, don't be too proud to admit that actually you get it now and that you're sorry, but there won't, it won't always be that you were wrong. I've also been in hundreds of situations where people are just nightmares, right? And it wasn't my fault. that kind of thing but I think knowing how to say it was me and put your hands up and say sorry when it is you and moving on and going on to the next thing I also just think just I don't know just knowing that this won't be the end of you this happens to everybody you know you might get fired or you might get rejected from that one job you really wanted but what will define you is is how you move on from that not that situation in and of itself Totally. No, great advice. Thanks, Raja. Well, you've had a really fascinating, varied career as an operator post your sort of early grounding at Accenture and as a lawyer. Do you mind giving our listeners who, who maybe don't know your background just a, a whistle-stop tour of your CV and how you ended up as a COO? I 
studied biology and politics at uni. Then I did law. I've always been interested in systems and how things work, which is why I did those degrees like biology, politics, etc. I always wanted to be a doctor, then later changed to a lawyer, wanted to be a human rights lawyer. And if you think that the corporate world is nepotistic, wait till you enter the not-for-profit world. It is even worse. And I couldn't penetrate that world for the life of me. So I had to make a very considered decision on if law is what I want, that's what I have to pursue. I can figure out the type of lawyer I want to be later. If I can't get into the not-for-profit world, I'll do the day job and nurture my social service interests on the side. So I got a job at Accenture, as I've talked about earlier, and then got offered a training contract. As soon as I got offered a training contract, I resigned Accenture and became a project manager on a day rate for myself because I was like, I don't need Accenture anymore. And I can go and make way more money doing the same thing until my training contract starts. I worked for McDonald's for a while on the pan-European rollout of the touchscreen ordering system. And my training contract started. I did that for a few years. And then I met Sean, who just as I was leaving Travers, had just founded Corndale, which was his, his first startup. And I was one of the first hires through the door doing generalist stuff, working on everything. He obviously fired me. So he fired me about a year in. And then I went on to work for other startups doing the same generalist early stage, figuring out how to take something from zero to something. And I think that's kind of what woke me up to the reality that that's what I love doing. I love building. I love being somewhere where you don't have a defined process or a system for something and you figure out how to get it up and running. So before I started working in startups, while I was a trainee lawyer, I founded the Pink Ladoo Project, which I obviously took from zero to whatever it is now in that time. And I think that gave me my first taste of launching something, taking something to market. It might not have been a business, but it was very much a taking something to market proposition. And yeah, I think that's how I learned that. And I got all of my startup jobs actually after Corndell by just directly emailing CEOs. I would email, and I've shared out my email template for this hundreds of times. I would just email in the title legal slash ops support. And I would the first three lines of my email, I, I made it as interesting as possible because I knew I've only got like a few lines to get this person's attention. And I would say, I would drop all the things that I think I thought could be of interest. Like I'm ex Accenture, I'm ex Travis Smith. I've worked in startups. I do A, B and C. I love your business because of X, Y, and Z. We should talk. I, you know, that I'm, I'm up for helping you grow and scale. Uh, but what I, I would always end on like, I'm up for any kind of opportunity, like permanent part-time full-time or interim so that it was like there's literally no pressure and it's me I'm not an agency so I've worked for like 20 startups in the last five years and most of them I got through just sending that email to CEO love that I love that how bold that is and and again it's very considered and you're thinking about the hooks and all that sort of stuff so I think it just goes to show it can work and hopefully that encourages others that might be looking at the moment to think think about just being bold and going for it thank you so much for sharing it's really interesting and you, you've obviously seen so many incredible startups over the last few years and really honed that COO skill set and you know I guess alongside the operator skill set and experience you've also founded a number of different ventures you South Asian therapist you mentioned, the Pink Laddie project, and, and obviously now Autogen AI. So did you always know you wanted to to go it alone like go along and build something alongside the kind of operator stuff that you've done? And how did you find that switch from operator to founder? 
I still see myself very much as an operator within Autogen AI. This is very much Sean's business, his vision that I deliver against. So I'm very much co-founder, he's founder. I think in my other ventures, I don't know if it's me or if I'm crazy, but I have never believed that any of these things are particularly hard. I think there are just rules of each game that you have to try to understand and figure out and then play. And that's actually what I find quite interesting is, so Sean, who is the founder of Autogen, obviously brilliant business person, he really loves board games. And I don't, I don't play board games, but I do always talk about my ventures in the sense of like, these are games that have to be played. So I think that's actually one thing we have in common is we love figuring things out and then doing it. Because I don't think any of these things are particularly hard. I think that's what, when I meet people who want to found their own thing or launch something or write a book, I, I often think that the thing that's holding them back is actually that they're very much in their own heads and that they understand that there are rules in the game, but rather than sort of like delving into it and trying to figure out what those rules are to then figure out how they can play the game themselves, they get caught up in this idea of like, I can't do it. The game is obviously just so intelligent and so exceptional that there's no way that I could play it. And I think I spend a lot of time convincing people actually, no, the game is not that special. It's just very, it has to be played in a very specific way. And I think one of the main things is as well, I always talk about how I'm very interested in the attention economy. I'm interested in how you get people to do what you want, not in a one-to-one way, but in a macro way. And I think generally that's what business is. It's figuring out if you're selling something, how do you get people to buy it? And um, I get a lot of people asking me, oh, I'm trying to launch a campaign or I'm trying to launch a business. Help me with my socials because I understand social media quite well and, and sales and direct sales and go to market. And the question I often ask them is, would you click this post? Would you respond to this email? Would you buy what you're selling in the way that it's currently being presented? And often, shockingly, the answer is no. And I often say to them, no, if you wouldn't do it, then why should anyone else? And that is, that's the rule of the game. And I think people get in their heads about what it takes to launch something or start something. It's not hard. It's just a bit like maths and you have to figure out the rules of the mathematics and then go and do the equations. Really interesting. Yeah, really, really interesting. And I think I think it's, it's another reason probably why you're incredibly successful as a COO and operator is that you bring a real, you bring a commercial lens and that go-to-market lens to the way you think. And I think that's a unique combination. We've got to talk about Autogen AI. It's a hugely exciting startup that you're, you're co-founder of. So tell us a bit more about the origin story, how it works and who is it built for? So Autogen AI is a business that is leveraging large language models and text generating AI against the very real business problem of writing and answering bids, tenders, and proposals. So we know that AI speeds up writing. We know that it makes writers faster. In our opinion, the best use case, the best business case for this is applying it to writing that is both business critical and very expensive to produce. And the only writing that we think is super business critical and very, very expensive to produce and directly linked to revenue is bid writing. There are businesses around the world who spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year just writing bids. They win billions of dollars worth of bids a year. Bids you know, are contracts. And they have little armies of bid writers who go out and answer these bids in the hope that their business will 
win that contract. And so for us, it's a complete no-brainer. The idea came about because Sean, who was the founder and the CEO, his first career was as a bid writer. And when he saw AI and text generating AI, he immediately saw the use case of how it could solve this very real, very live, very expensive business problem. So that's what we do. We apply large language models and help businesses answer bids, tenders, and proposals more quickly, more efficiently, which allows them to grow at a much higher rate. We took our product to market in December. We've signed over 40 clients, enterprise clients. We're the fastest growing AI business in the UK. And we are revolutionizing the way people tender and the way people try and win business. We already have clients who are telling us that thanks to our technology, you know, they've won double the amount of contracts they did previously. They've literally doubled their revenue because their writers are so much faster now and so much more effective that not only are they able to submit more bids, but the bids that they are submitting are of a higher quality. So that's what we do. It's a very, sometimes Sean and I joke that it's a very boring application of a very sexy tech, but honestly, the boring application solves a very real expensive business problem. Over half a trillion dollars is spent globally on the production of bids, tender and proposals. So, you know, companies are spending a lot of money trying to win work and we help them reduce that cost. Huge opportunity. And increase their win rate. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And it's, it really, you can really see the use case, as you say. And generative AI is the talk of the town. Everyone listening to this will have probably used or at least heard of ChatGPT. But there are also still going to be people that are very scared as much as some that were excited and some that are scared, probably in equal measures about the potential of AI and what it really means. So I guess to give a balanced opinion, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the opportunities for those maybe that might be a little bit skeptic. And then on the other side, it'd be good also to understand your view on the drawbacks of AI and how we might be able to convince people that are very skeptical about it. So we'd love, love your thoughts on those things. So Sean and I just got back from San Francisco. We were invited to a summit with 20 other businesses. We were the only UK business that got invited, the only non-US business that got invited, actually. And it was to discuss with some of these tech leaders in Silicon Valley, the future of AI and business building in this space. And one thing that was really interesting that we heard over the weekend is a lot of the companies who run the models behind things like ChatGPT were talking about how actually these technologies are being used to level the playing field with people who have different language skills. So ChatGPT and other large language models are being used to help people correct their grammar, help people get things, people who aren't native English speakers to type things and write correspondence in English. So there's a lot of actually really good uses of AI that we're seeing where they're helping level the playing field. There's a lot of AI that's now being used to help people learn other languages, which is really amazing, and helping people access the written word in a way that they might not have been able to previously, whether that's due to you know, a neurodiverse requirement or a language barrier, which I think is awesome. I think we are scared of AI in the same way that we've been scared of many technological inventions when we've been on the forefront of something big. I know that Photoshop was very scary when it first came out, but I think if you ever engage with an AI model, like they are really intelligent, they are awesome, they do brilliant things, but you realize you like hit the limit of it quite quickly. And I think for people who interact with it, I think it can seem magical initially. And I think that magicalness is what is 
is terrifying. But I think if you are at that stage where you've interacted with the magical side of it and now you're scared, I would encourage you to keep interacting with it because you will quickly realize that actually it's not as magical as you think it is and you will you will hit the limits of it very quickly. One thing that we hear a lot is people get scared and they'll say that I've heard that AI is going to be able to write better code than the average coder soon. Yes, but it needs a human to prompt it. Right. So we're not at the stage yet where we can remove the human part of the AI cycle. So I think some of that fear is founded in a fundamental misunderstanding of the tech and its capability right now. That's really helpful. That's really good to hear. And I hope any skeptics or anyone that's a bit terrified about it will engage with it, because at least then you can make a balanced view, as you say. And I think as somebody myself that didn't know too much about it and has started to use it a bit for my day job, I've seen the benefits just and I can see this huge value in it for everybody. So yeah, keen to embrace it more. And I hope others listening will. You've spoken about the importance of ethical AI, which I think is really interesting. So do you mind elaborating a bit about that and also share how businesses listening to or owners, founders of businesses listening can strike the balance between leveraging AI's potential, but also ensuring they're taking into consideration the ethical side of things? Yeah, I mean, look, I think anything is dangerous in the wrong hands. From sugarcane, you can make you can make sugar and you can make other things, but you can also make like alcohol and acid, right? Like, and that doesn't mean to say that we like ban sugarcane from being in use, but I think proper responsible implementation and use is key. I think it's important to not throw out the baby with the bathwater just because something can be misapplied or used in a perverse way doesn't mean that we should bin it for its good and ethical and helpful uses as well. So that's kind of the example that I try and lean towards it. It has more to do with the human interacting with it and whose hands we let it get into and what we let them do with that rather than the AI itself. Yeah. Totally fair. Thank you for sharing. We'd love to hear a bit more about Autogen AI's story to date. You've you talked about the Genesis story. It sounds like it's going incredibly well, but tell us a bit about the journey of building. How's it going? What's been your biggest highlight so far? And I guess on the flip side, have there been any particularly really challenging moments in the last year or two? Yeah. So the highlight has been that this is no one's first rodeo. So Sean has obviously founded, built and scaled and exited a business before. I've got a lot of experience in tech startups. We've got a very, very experienced team. So it's actually really exciting to be building something new where everyone's super experienced and really understands that idea of like minimum input, maximum output. We are doing value-based work always. We're constantly doing work that drives one of the four objectives of the business, which is build, sell, delight users, demonstrate value. If you're not doing one of those four things, we constantly ask like, what are you doing and why? That's been really exciting. It's been interesting also to watch how the conversation around AI has changed in our time. So we founded the business. Sean founded it in February, 2022. I came on in April, May. And for the rest of that year, we were talking to people and taking this thing to market and nobody understood AI. We were saying AI can write and people were looking at us like we were totally insane, like we were making it up. And this didn't stop our sales conversation because obviously the demos were very powerful, but it's just been fascinating to watch how the conversation around AI changed after ChatGPT came out because now the foundational understanding of AI completely changed across the market, right? We were no longer having to convince people that this magical thing existed. They knew it existed. We could go straight to our value proposition. That was really fascinating to watch. And it was really amazing to have been a part of something 
before it exploded and then watching how the public shaped its view of this thing. That's been really cool. Setbacks? I don't think we've had any setbacks, but we've had the teething pains that are usual in any business. We set some departments up in perhaps suboptimal ways initially. We have revised our strategies on product and what we think is important continually. We've changed how we incorporate customer feedback into our product development and review cycles. So there haven't been any like major catastrophes, but we've just kind of, we've been able to iterate and learn and pivot really quickly where we've had to. We pride ourselves on being a low ego environment. And I think that really helps when you've committed to strategy A and strategy A is not working. If you're a low ego environment, everybody is on board when we say that didn't work, we need to pivot. Whereas the thing is, if you get into high ego environments, it can be very difficult to pivot because people feel very emotionally or egotistically attached to the strategy. Whereas we don't really have that. We're constantly thinking about like, what is right for the business and moving to do that. Love it. And again, that is a nice segue into my next question, which was going to talk a bit about culture and kind of hiring, obviously a big topic that we're very interested in. It'd be good to understand sort of what the, uh, I guess, roadmap looks like in terms of strategy and also hiring plans for the year ahead, because I think there are going to be lots of people listening to this that are going to be sending their CV your way. So any insights on that would be super great. And also just what types of people and individuals and skill sets and characteristics do you like to see when you get CVs sent into your inbox? Yeah, so one thing Sean and I are quite clear on is that we hire for brightness. And we've been very careful about how we couch that because we're not the types of people that believe that badges from certain institutions are what determine intellect. We have a lot of people working for us who might not have badges like other people do, but we still see them as like exceptionally intelligent. For Sean and I, intelligence really is about being entrepreneurial, being able to find a way through, being very detail-oriented, being a doer and a go-getter. That's what we love. That's what we really want to see. We want people who are hungry to learn, people who can admit when they don't know something, people who can defer to somebody who knows more about something than they do and people who are just willing to get stuck in. That's what we really love. We also really love multidisciplinary people. So our chief of AI R&D is also a former Olympian. And he, we love that, you know, we've got so many people who've got side hustles, who do various different things. And we just love that type of ingenuity and creativity because we really believe that you bring that to the workplace in terms of our culture our culture is very much we are ruthlessly commercial we're always focused on what is best for the business we're a very low ego environment we don't have time for brilliant jerks it just doesn't work here and everybody works high and low we don't have energy for people who might act like something is beneath them. We're a very low ego environment where you are expected to abandon an idea that you had that might have been your baby if it's proven not to be the right thing to do. I always say that one of the reasons why I really rate Sean as a founder is I've worked for many founders and one of my litmus tests is always, is this person interested in growing a business or do they just want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine? And I can say this certainty that for Sean, 
he is absolutely interested in building a business. And that's kind of what we look for in people that we hire. We want people who are as interested in building a business as we are and who aren't perhaps using this as sort of a vanity exercise. Yeah, that's a super important trait in a founder. And uh, yeah, he sounds like he's very, very good. And the two of you make a brilliant team uh, and also sounds based on what you described like it's a really great culture so i'm hoping you'll get lots of great cvs coming at you after this podcast goes live and uh yeah the year ahead is a really successful one for you before we get to our final wrap-up questions i just wanted to quickly touch upon some of the other initiatives that you are involved in and have set up and one of those is a hugely successful campaign pink ladu project so do you mind just sharing just a bit about that and also just any advice you might have for others that might be listening to this might be operators like you that have a a personal passion for something how can you have impact as an activist i would love just to hear a bit more about that so i believe that sexism and the mistreatment of women the root cause of that so there are many causes obviously like discrimination patriarchy etc but the root cause is the idea that women are inferior and i truly believe that the way that that idea has been spread through society is through sexist custom and tradition. And so I believe that we cannot change women's situation until we eradicate sexist custom and tradition, because that perpetuates this myth that women are inferior and it functions like intergenerational propaganda. And so for me, the first sexist custom that a South Asian child will experience is the custom of a girl's birth not being celebrated as jubilantly as a boy's birth. In South Asian cultures, sweets are very intimately tied to celebration. And there is a longstanding custom of celebrating a yellow sweet, uh, sorry, distributing a yellow sweet called a laddu to announce the birth of your boy. But there is no corresponding longstanding tradition to mark the birth of a girl. And that's what we do. We encourage people to celebrate their daughter's births. It's a very simple call to action, but highly replicable, very easy to copy. I do not make or sell pink laddu. But we really leveraged the concept of social proof in order to get people to do it. So I found a few families who were willing to celebrate their daughters with pink ladu and shared pictures of it all over social media. And it took off like wildfire within six months. Pink ladu were like the best selling suite across Indian sweet shops in Australia, Canada and the UK because people do what they see others doing. So that's what it is. In essence, we are encouraging South Asian families to really engage with sexist custom and tradition and really examine the messages that they might be sending their children inadvertently from a young age that women are inferior to men. My advice to people who want to be activists, I meet a lot of people who would have something that I consider to be activist burnout. I've never had activist burnout. And I would say one of the reasons why I think people get activist burnout is because they are focused on climbing Everest, which is changing the world, rather than taking actual joy and interest in the steps that might be involved in getting there with the understanding that you might never, ever climb Everest. And that's what I say. I always tell people that you've got to be interested and motivated in doing it, even if you only ever impact one life. And if you're not interested in doing it, if the outcome is that you only impact one life, then you need to find something else because you will get bored and burnt out and dissatisfied very quickly. And when I find myself sort of spiraling, being like, oh God, like nobody knows about Pink Ladu. I don't have enough followers. No one's celebrating their daughters. I always go back to that thing that I told myself when I first launched the campaign, which was that if only one girl's birth gets celebrated, it was worth it. 
And I think people really need to go back to that model. Like I'm a very big believer in minimum input, maximum output. That's why I, I function solely on social media. I don't have time to go door knocking. But equally, I'm also very clear on there is value in this, even if it doesn't change the world, even if it doesn't become a global phenomenon. So that's my advice. Amazing advice and really inspirational project and campaign. And uh, yeah, fully get behind that. And uh, I hope a lot of others listening to this will will check it out. So thank you for sharing. We're Sally and then Raj. So we've got three more final questions. This is 40 Minute Mentor. If you could be mentored by anybody, dead or alive, who would it be and why? No one. Um, I think I'm all right. I'm worried about putting people up on pedestals. Okay, fair enough. Maybe like Guru Nanak. Okay. <laughs> because I think um, the only mentoring I'm looking for in my life right now is spiritual mentorship. Okay. So yeah, Guru Nanak, that's it. <laughs> really appreciate it. And uh, with this series is a bit different. We've asked our Fortunate Mental community, we told them about your appearance on the podcast and we've got a few questions. So we've got it doing a little uh, question roulette for you. So if you could pick one, two or three, we'll see what they've got for you. Three. Okay, three. So you wear many hats and juggle many roles and responsibilities. How do you juggle it all? It doesn't feel like juggling because I love it. And I think that's the key. I think in order to do many things, you have to love all of the things that you do. In a more practical way, I juggle it by ruthlessly prioritizing where I spend my time, how I spend my time. And I don't do things that don't bring me joy and don't put me into flow state. So people will often ask me like, how do you manage Autogen AI and South Asian therapists and Pink Ladoo and your books? I receive something from all of them. I enter flow state when I'm working on all of them. And so that's how I juggle it. Obviously, you know, there's a lot that I don't get to do. I don't probably don't see my friends as often as I would like to. My relationship with my partner, we we're constantly talking about one of those four things. That's a life that I love. I, it doesn't feel like juggling because I love every single part of it. But ruthless prioritization, lots of to-do lists. I'm obsessed with my G calendar. My inbox is a dumpster fire if anyone wants to give me advice on how I can fix it. So yeah, that's it. There's also an element of I'm aware that this is a season in my life that I'm always on doing millions of different things. But I know that this won't always be my season. And there will be a season where I work at a very different pace. I really love everything you just said there. And I think if if there's one thing that I think we all want is to find that flow state and find things that really we're passionate about and we can get into that way of doing things, which is it's lovely. So thank you for sharing. Final question. If there's one piece of advice that you can leave our listeners with today, what would it be? Stop getting in your own way. I meet so many people who want to try a new career or want to apply for a job and they I tell them about my email template that I used to send CEOs and they literally say to me like, oh, what if no one replies? And my answer is, so what? Just go and try it. Done is better than perfect. Just go and try it. Get, stop getting in your own way. Really, no one cares if it doesn't work out. You're the only person that's judging you. Stop. What a great place to end it. Brilliant piece of advice to finish. Thank you so much, Raj, for sharing your story and giving uh, amazing mentorship to our listeners. And we wish you all the very best with Autogen AI and all the exciting projects you have. I'm sure it's going to be a fantastic year ahead for you. Thank you, James.